This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Nearly 18 months have passed since Donald Trump left office and since that event that counts as a national trauma, the attempted insurrection on Capitol Hill. The fallout of that event continues to dominate American politics one way or another, especially now as there's a big debate in the United States prompted by the launch of a new book called This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden and the Battle for America's Future. I'm Jonathan Friedland, Guardian columnist, and this is Politics Weekly America. In the new book, Alexander Burns and Jonathan Martin reveal thousands of documents and also some tapes of previously unheard conversations between the key power players on both sides in those dramatic moments on January the 6th, as Republican leaders and others work out what they are going to do with a president who they believe is plotting a coup against the United States. The book has also revealed huge divisions, not just in Republicans, but in the Democratic Party too. All of which leads to a question that frames the book. If the events of January the 6th were a test for American democracy, is America passing that test or failing it? That was the question I put to Jonathan Martin. I would say neither. I'd say that the grade is incomplete, Jonathan. I mean, I think we're still grappling with this in the states, this question of can our system of democracy still work in this period of maximum polarization and political tribalism. And I think we we emerged from January 6th, a traumatic day in the history of this country, and we obviously swore in a new president. There was a transfer of power, but it was not a peaceful transfer of power, which of course is the hallmark of American democracy. And it's worrisome. And I think that the reason we called this book, This Will Not Pass, is because this is an ongoing story. You know, we're trying to capture a moment in history, and we're hopefully sort of offering the building blocks for future historians with this book. But it's not history yet. This is an ongoing story. Donald Trump still may run for president again yet in 2024. It's not clear how the system will hold up if he does that uh, and if he loses again and challenges the results of the election. So uh, I can't give you a definitive answer because uh, the story is still unfolding. 
We might come back to some of those bigger themes, but let's just dive into the extraordinary reporting you and your colleague Alexander Burns have done for this book. Some of it is actually in real time. It recalls one or other of you speaking to the players as these events are unfolding. There's a great moment where Mitch McConnell pulls one of you to one side and in a sort of quiet place talks and describes, I think, the president as being despicable. Donald Trump, of course, at that point, a despicable human being. And uh, there are moments like that all the way through. So let's drill through some of those. Firstly, in the heat of January the 6th, there is an effort to get Donald Trump to give up power, even just the 12 or 14 more days he's actually due to hold power. And I think what would be a surprise to readers is it's not just Democrats. It's not just Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, who are thinking, can we use this moment to push him out? There are people in his own party on the Republican side. Tell us about that and how serious did it get? Well, this is, I think, one of the the parts of the book that's gotten a lot of attention in the States, and that is the effort uh, behind the scenes in the days after January 6th and the would-be insurrection uh, in the U.S. Capitol. Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, and Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, on separate tracks trying to figure out how they could rid themselves of Donald Trump. I've I've had it with this guy. Uh, What he did is unacceptable. Nobody can defend that and nobody should defend it. We have Kevin McCarthy on tape talking about various options. One is him calling for Trump to resign and going to Trump and telling him to resign. Of course, McCarthy denied doing that until we released the audio tape. Just on that, I mean, he walked right into a trap there, didn't he? Because you had it, you were kind of daring him to deny it, and he did. And he flatly denied it, and we obviously then uh, released uh, him him saying that in, in black and white. Uh, the other option is, you know, the, the 25th Amendment to the Constitution, which basically allows the cabinet to to force out the president in case of incapacity. And this would have tested that uh, th- there was never the will among the cabinet to band together and force Trump out. But we have McCarthy again on tape talking about that. Is that a possibility? And McCarthy concludes that wouldn't be fast enough. That takes too long to go back to the House. And then, of course, there's uh, impeachment. And, you know, Trump obviously was impeached in the House uh, before January 20th uh, and then uh, ultimately was not convicted in the Senate. The best day, I think, for everybody as Americans move forward is focus on the future, not the past, trying to bring us together. And I do think the impeachment divides the nation further and continues to fight even greater. So you've got McCarthy grappling with all those possibilities talking to his fellow Republican leaders on this conference call that we have the audio of. Separately, McConnell... Over in the Senate. Yeah, over in the Senate. McConnell is almost delighted that Trump is going to get impeached and that, uh, as he says, the Democrats are going to take care of the son of a bitch for us. And by that, he means that Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats are going to impeach Trump. It will then come to the Senate. And of course, there will be enough senators voting to convict Trump and that they will then bar him from running for office in the future. How it works is, if somebody gets uh, convicted in the Senate of impeachment charges, there is then a subsequent vote to bar that person from ever seeking office again. And in the days after January 6th, Jonathan, McConnell sees the votes there. He believes that that is a real possibility, that, that there could be the votes to convict Trump uh, in the Senate. And once and for all, they would be rid of Donald Trump. 
So obviously, look, reading this now in the summer of 2022, we have to ask what happened? You have these Republican leaders ready to push Donald Trump, not just out of the Oval Office, but out of public life. They, You have them almost licking their lips at the prospect, and yet we know they didn't do it. So why not? Well, this is a recurring theme in our politics. Ever since Donald Trump came on the American political scene seven years ago, Republicans have been looking and hoping and at times praying for a chance that he will go away. And we saw this in the fall of 2016 when the Access Hollywood tape came out. Anyone who knows me knows these words don't reflect who I am. I said it, I was wrong, and I apologize. Well, then Trump was, you know, caught on tape, speaking of tape, uh, saying um, profane things about about women. And you had a period then, much like after January 6th, where a lot of sort of old guard Republican leaders said, well, this has to be it. This is the one. There's no way he'll survive this. And as with that tape and uh, January 6th, the same thing happened. The Republican leadership realized their voters weren't that bothered by it, and they still like Trump just fine. And that's the calculation they make is, We've got to stick with him, even though we don't actually like him. And we actually think he's bad for the party, bad for the country, because our voters want us to. And it's just not much more complicated than that, John. So I think readers, perhaps uh, readers, certainly how I come at it, will think, all right, Republican Party, the Republican Party failed this test. But on the other side, the Democrats, they don't come out uh, exceptionally well out of your account either. On some level, they have failed this test too, partly by failing to agree with each other. You chart the internal dissension. with, And we've talked about it a lot over the last few months on this podcast, the inability to get things done. You have, you know, moderates, or what, you know, so-called moderates, conservatives, really, like Joe Manchin at one end. Uh, you have progressives, AOC and the so-called squad and the other. Is Joe Biden failing that test that he almost set himself to unite, forget the country, his own party after the trauma of January the 6th and Donald Trump. It's hard to recall a moment where the two major parties here were less coherent. And basically the only organizing principle in the two parties is a contempt bordering on fear uh, of the other party. They're much less organized around their agenda and what they're for than they are just a complete disdain for the opposition. And so because of that, the Republican Party is able to sort of bump along, even though there's this massive chasm uh, between the, the leadership class and the rank and file when it comes to Donald Trump. And Democrats have this sort of big tent that's bordering on an unwieldy tent. Uh, you know, basically their coalition includes everything, you know, from a sort of country club Republican who sort of fell out of the party uh, after the Bush days because they can't stand Donald Trump to actual socialists. That's a pretty big coalition. So, <laughs> uh, you know, of course, uh, that is going to be hard to sustain. And Biden is not really anchored in sort of either of those factions. On the one hand, he wanted to unify the country, heal the country after Trump, after COVID, and sort of put his sort of uh, gift for empathy to work. On the other hand, he's ambitious. He, he has a certain degree of vanity. He's wanted this job for decades. He also would love to outdo Barack Obama, which is another theme of our book. And 
the idea of being a consequential, even transformative president would really appealing to a guy who's nearly 80 years old. So I think he was torn between those two imperatives, too. It's hard to be unifying and transformative. Yeah, one of the things I find very interesting in, in the book is that you don't locate the Democrats' weakness solely in the fact that they've got this wafer-thin, almost non-majority in the Senate. You do locate it partly within the heart and soul of Joe Biden, that's suggesting that the part of the problem is him rather than just not having the votes. You've alluded there also to one of the fascinating subplots of the book, and it's it was striking to me, I have to say, that the impression that has been brilliantly projected since 2008 onwards was of this almost road movie bromance between <laughs> Barack Obama and um, Joe Biden. This also gives the internet one last chance to <laughs> talk about our bromance. And Joe Biden got a lot of juice in the 2020 campaign from the fact that he was the buddy of a loved president. You reveal, and you've just nodded to the rivalry there, but you say there's even that it's not it's even a two-way street that Obama is somehow jealous even of, of Joe Biden. Just just unpack some of that for us. Yeah. So I look the sort of Obama PR machine was brilliant at this, uh, which is these two fellows, different generations, very different backgrounds, but they become best of buddies and uh, uh, sort of created this, this bromance. The truth is it was more a relationship of convenience for both uh, parties. And Biden has not been shy, Jonathan, about expressing his displeasure at what he views as the condescending nature of a lot of Obama's White House. And also the fact that they steered him away from running for president in 2016 by rallying to Hillary Clinton uh, early. And something Biden has resented that for years, the sort of view of him as this gaff-prone kind of goofy uncle, uh, which took hold in the Obama years. He- oh, and he blames the Obama team partly for spreading that yeah yeah and also blames them pointedly uh for sort of steering him away from running for president yeah. in 16 and sort of rallying to somebody who lost a donald trump on the other hand we have reporting from the spring of 21 in which Obama is deeply frustrated at the coverage of Biden for potentially being a bigger, more transformative president than him. Because, you know, at this time, Biden's riding high. There's FDR comparisons for Pete's sake. And Obama is telling people in private, you know, when I was president, it was a very different Democratic Party. We had a lot more Joe Manchins back then. It was tougher to get big stuff done. And I had to balance all these Southerners and Midwestern Democrats who were who were much much more conservative, so it's a fascinating sort of uh, behind the scenes look at Obama grumbling about the credit Biden's getting that he didn't get, and then Biden is sort of saying out loud to advisors, "I don't think Barack's going to like this at all. All this coverage about maybe being more transformative than him. It's a real peek behind this kind of sibling rivalry." Well, and that is obviously of huge, in some ways, historic interest. But there's, you know, if you like rivalry on the Democratic side, you've got another one between a president and a vice president. And that is the one that's ongoing now uh, between Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. We've talked about that relationship and particularly her vice presidency a fair bit on this podcast. But bring us up to date with that. I mean, you I mean, it, it's it's sort of worse, the relationship than I think um, people had even realized. What's gone wrong there? It's not a very close relationship. Well, he he picked Kamala Harris because she made the most sense politically for their most urgent task, which was how do we beat Donald Trump? 
And I don't think there was a lot of deep thought given to the role she would play in the White House, how 2024 would shake out, the implications of a very old white male uh, president who may not be able to seek a second term with a younger, less experienced black woman. I don't think any of that was deeply considered. I think it was a political move in a political season. And I think Vice President Harris has her own frustrations. I think she wants a sort of more defined role. She wants to have more influence with President Biden. She wants to have more understanding of of sort of where Biden stands on some issues. You know, for example, I think she was really frustrated on the voting rights issue sort of given to her as one of her tasks, in part because Biden was reluctant to say out loud whether or not he wanted to break the filibuster for voting rights until the very end. And obviously that bill didn't go anywhere. So this is a real story. And I think one of the biggest themes in American politics this year and next year is going to be Biden and Harris. Does Biden run again? And if so, you know, how soon does he decide? And if he doesn't run again, how soon does he announce that? And then does he back his vice president? And well, many questions there. What's your own read of that question about whether we are looking at the first and last term of Joe Biden or whether he wants another crack? Every first term president in recent history, we just assume that they're going to seek re-election because that's what they do. And so I think Biden would like to run. And I think if you put Biden on truth serum today, he would say he's planning on running. Now, we're still a ways away from 24. I don't think it's a sure thing. If you ask Democrats privately in Washington, they will tell you they're skeptical that Biden is going to seek re-election. But I think today he wants to seek re-election. But look, how do the midterms go? What's the state of the economy? What's the end game in Ukraine? And frankly, you know, how is his health? I think all those questions remain to be decided and will shape his ultimate choice. I will say this, though. <laughs> the day after the midterms, the clock starts ticking. And these Democrats are going to get so damn nervous if Biden does not offer his plans. And every day that goes by and there's uncertainty and Trump is looming in the wings, you can just imagine the anxiety, Jonathan, coming from Democrats. No, I can't. And, and it's not just about Biden, is it? I mean, there is a generational rift. I talked before about the left-right between, you know, conservatives and progressives within the Democratic coalition. But you look at Joe Biden, you know, knocking 80, Nancy Pelosi around the same age, that, you know, the people running the Republican Party are also pretty old, Mitch McConnell, 80, Donald Trump, mid-70s. You know, is, is the part of the problem, let's just stay with the Democrats and how they might re react to the midterms, is part of the problem a distrust by the older generation of the younger generation that makes them unwilling to pass the torch. Yeah, I think you're on to something. I think there is grave uncertainty among people like Biden and Pelosi about who can pick up the torch and sort of keep this unwieldy coalition together. Who's able to sort of, you know, placate the moderates in the party, but not alienate the progressives and, and vice versa. And I think Pelosi believes, you know, with, with some justification too, that she is uniquely able to do that and that it's no easy task. But at some point, does that become sort of self-justifying, Jonathan, and sort of an excuse, not the past, the baton? It is remarkable that we have in America today a leadership class, if you include Donald Trump, in both parties that's over the age of 70, uh, that has uh, you know effectively been in or near power for decades now. I just can't think of a time in American history where you know, one generation 
still had their grip on power so much later. It's like the you know Civil War era of veterans were were sort of still at the vanguard of American power, like after the, the turn of the century. It's just a fascinating moment. No, it is. And what about your your own feeling about the? And I know it's always uncomfortable to be sort of predicting, but if Joe Biden says look, I can't do another four years, and partly it could be for personal or health reasons. Beyond the generational point, do the Democrats have a deep bench? I mean, we've talked on this uh, show a bit about Republicans and Ron DeSantis. People know about that field if Donald Trump, for whatever reason, isn't the nominee, and I think most people think he probably will be. But on the on the Democrat side, if it's not Joe Biden, I mean, who else is there besides this, the vice president with whom the relation is very strained? You're tapping into one of the hottest conversations among Democrats right now, which is if Biden doesn't go and many of them think he, he, he can't, you know, what do we do as a party? I think obviously Kamala Harris would have a lot of built in advantages. But look, I think if Biden isn't running, I think there'll be a robust primary. I think you'll have a number of governors, senators, perhaps even mayors who give it a look. You have to consider people who have run before in the Senate, Amy Klobuchar. Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker. I think you have to look at the ranks of governor, people like Gavin Newsom in California, who always likes reminding people that California would be the seventh biggest economy in the world uh, if it was its own country. You, You know, the lesson of recent American political history is that if you want to run, you should run. And the American voter is not going to hold uh, whatever uh, credentials or lack of credentials you think you have against you. Think about this. Barack Obama, Bernie Sanders, Pete Buttigieg, Donald Trump. Those four individuals have very little in common, Jonathan. But yeah. one of the things that they do have in common is, you know, in an earlier time in American history, there would have been great skepticism that somebody that had the profile of each of those four people had could be a viable candidate for president. But it turned out that they were. And I think that history is going to prompt a lot of folks to look at this race in 24 if Biden does not run. The reason why your book is different from a lot of the political books that appear, it isn't just a sort of extended deep probe into everything that's been going on the last couple of years, because that itself would be fascinating given the access you got and the people you've spoken to. But you do frame it against the backdrop of a bigger question about the health and viability of American democracy. So I just want to talk about that a bit in our sort of closing minutes. You, you know, you write that in the end, a democracy can only succeed if its elected leaders are determined to sustain it. And if the voters to which they answer maintain their faith in the system, judged by that standard, you must be pretty pessimistic for the state of American democracy right now. Yeah, I think in the short to medium term, I'm, I'm very pessimistic about our, our fate. I think that the, the polarization, the sort of lack of shared facts, the, the sort of red versus blue media uh, pipelines that, that you know, so many American voters now live with has created a fairly toxic system and uh, has really made it hard to govern. And I don't see the fever breaking anytime soon. We quote a few folks who were probably familiar to to your audience, uh, people like Malcolm Turnbull, the former prime minister of Australia, a fellow named Tony Blair, um, (laughs) Bob Ray, who's the Canadian ambassador to the UN. And they basically say, like, you know, America is important. And like world needs America to have a healthy democracy. And right now, the world can't count on that. And you know what? They're right. Uh, and that's tough for me to say, but I think it's the truth. 
And um, I'm not sure how that changes. The American voters need to demand better, but the American voters are pretty damn divided right now, Jonathan. And so you see no change or loosening of the grip that Donald Trump holds on his party that has led his party to think they couldn't condemn a violent attempted insurrection that since that day uh, 18 months or so ago you don't see a change that his party is is moving away from that kind of alarming politics well i don't see the party moving away from trump style nationalism i think that that is now in the groundwater now that said you know, Donald Trump got the nomination in 2016 in the first place. He didn't get 50% of the vote in the primary. He benefited from a divided field and won the nomination effectively with a plurality. And I think if you have Trump running again in 2024, you know, even if you have opposition to him, if the field's divided and there's not one person that can beat him, he could easily be the, the nominee again, benefiting from uh, divisions in the opposition to him. Jonathan, we always ask our guests on the podcast a what else question. Elon Musk, this perhaps soon to be owner of Twitter, says if he's the owner, he's going to bring Donald Trump back on the platform uh, and maybe others too who, you know, been permanently kicked off. There would only be a sort of time out. What's the impact on American politics of Trump, but even others like him, getting their voice back on Twitter? Republican lawmakers will not be happy to hear that uh, publicly. Uh, they may say that uh, he should be allowed back on and free speech, but I, I don't think they want that distraction. I think they have quite enjoyed having having life free of that distraction here for the last year and change. Jonathan Martin, the book co-written with your colleague Alexander Burns is called This Will Not Pass, and it's just out. Thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. This has been a, a treat. Thanks so much. And that is all from me for this week. You can find a link to where you can buy the book on today's episode description on the Guardian website. You should also listen out for Thursday's episode of Politics Weekly UK as Raphael Baer, Gavin Barwell and Miata Fanbula discuss the return of Brexit's knottiest issue, border checks in Northern Ireland with the prospect of political uncertainty on the island of Ireland. They question whether Boris Johnson can find a solution. Just search for Politics Weekly UK on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And in this very important midterm year, I want to hear from you. What would you like me to cover over the next few weeks and months about how politics shapes American society? Send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com or you can find me on Twitter where I'm at Friedland with a double E. But for now, it's goodbye. The producer is Daniel Stevens. The executive producer is Maz Eptahaj. And I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent, and I am back for third helpings of comfort eating from The Guardian. Join me and more celebrity guests like Big Zoo, James May and Self-Esteem as we throw the cupboard doors wide open on the comfort foods that have seen them through. This is a niche sexual thing for people. Uh. Northern women (laughs) eating carbohydrates. Comfort Eating returns on the 17th of May with new episodes released every Tuesday. 
And you can see Grace doing Comfort Eating Live for the first time on Wednesday, 25th of May at the podcast show in Islington, London. Her special guest is entrepreneur, podcaster and TV personality, Jamie Lang, best known for his time as a regular on Made in Chelsea. That's Comfort Eating Live with Jamie Lang on the 25th of May. Book your tickets now at gigsandtours.com. Comfort Eating with Grace Stent is supported by Ocado. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.